0: Welcome to Be the Change, Interfaith Approaches to Social Justice. I'm Gina George-Zakran, the Social Justice Trustee here at Kihilat Israel. Our hope is through education and commitment to the common good, we can deepen our understanding and connection to each other. I'm going to briefly introduce our panelists. Robert Buswell is a distinguished professor of Korean and Chinese Buddhist studies and director of the Center for Buddhist Studies at UCLA. He serves as founding director of the Academy of Buddhist Studies at Dongguk University in Korea. Salam al Mariati is president and co-founder of the Muslim Public Affairs Council. An expert on Islam in the West and the Muslim Reform Movement, He is a board member of the Muslim Reform Institute and an advisor on the role of Islam and Muslims in America. Rabbi Amy Bernstein is senior rabbi here at Kihilat Israel, a Reconstructionist congregation. She graduated from Northwestern University and the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. The Reverend Grace Park is associate pastor at Pacific Palisades Presbyterian Church. She studied at Fuller Theological Seminary and graduated with a Master's of Divinity, focusing on multicultural studies and pastoral counseling. And finally, Brie LaScoda is Director, excuse me, Executive Director of the USC Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Her research focuses on how religions change and make change in the world. She's actively involved in several nonprofit groups that work at the intersection of religion and the public square. The World Economics Forum selected her as a member of its 2017 Young Global Leaders. And now, Brie Lascoda.
1: So I was asked to moderate this, and I'm thrilled to be with old friends and new and to be in this beautiful place. Um, And before we get going, one of the goals I know of your... um, of your communities to help build community amongst each other and so even though we did some introductions here and you heard the the caliber of speakers that we have, I wanted to ask them to actually be a little bit more personal both in their comments as we go through the discussion but also in their introductions so you can get to know about who they are as people. Because I think if we're talking about social justice and we're talking about changing the world, we have to ground that practice in the notion that we're not just talking about ideas and morals, we're fundamentally talking about the human experience. So what we're going to do is introduce uh, introduce ourselves by telling you the story of our names. Um, And I do this work with peace-building groups all around the world, and the goal is really to help you reveal a little bit more about who you are, where you come from, the histories of your families, the stories that sort of mattered, that that formed you. But we're not just going to do this. You're going to do this. I know. Sorry. Uh, So I'll start, and I'll explain how to do this very quickly. You can pick your middle name, your first name your last name, a nickname, a name you hate, a name you love, it doesn't matter. So I will explain mine. You'll, you will turn to somebody that you're seated near. It can be someone that you know, but you might not know anything about their name. If it's your parent, then you might want to ask them why they, you have the name that you, you do. But just in one minute, you'll be asked to explain the story of your name to your neighbor and then listen to theirs. And then our panelists will uh, introduce themselves with the same. I will tell you mine. My name is Bree. I was named after a cheese. Um, it's true. Uh, and people always laugh because it is true. Um, but the story is a little deeper. My parents came from the U.S. They went to Europe. My dad grew up very poor. My mom grew up very wealthy. It was quite a scandal when they got married. And my dad said, I want I want to not be poor. And how do you not be poor? Well, you get an education. So he went uh, to Europe. He was a, after graduate school, got a postdoc. And he said, you know, I'm still going to be a poor researcher. I'm never actually going to make any money. You know who makes money? Doctors. So I'm going to become a doctor. Well, the only place he could ever afford to and get into medical school, where they spoke English, was in the southern Philippines in the 70s under Marcos. And so my family moved there before I was born, and I was born in Cebu City in the Philippines. And I think when he looked down at me, when I, and I was, came out this color, and he thought about the hardship of living in the southern Philippines under a dictator, under martial law. He thought, you know, I love Europe. I loved our time there. I loved the food. <laughs> Brie is a really nice name. <laughs> and so that is how I got the name Brie. So I'm going to ask you to do the same. That was less than a minute. Turn to your neighbor and tell them the story of your name. I'm going to ask the two of you to do that, and Salam and, and Robert, you can tell each other the story of your name. And then, and
2: then we share with them? No. Yeah, and then yes, we'll go through.
3: Uh,
1: I hope that you learned something about someone sitting next to you, and I hope that you learned something actually about yourself reflecting on this. I'm going to ask uh, Reverend Grace to start and just tell us the story of your name.
2: So my first name, everybody, when they find out that I'm a pastor and my name is Grace, everybody goes, oh, (laughs) my mom named me after Grace Kelly. (laughs) Had I been a boy, she would have named me Carrie after Carrie Grant. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get, my name wasn't theological, but um, it turns out that I I became a pastor and um, I think God knew that my name needed to be Grace. And uh, I think part of... What I'm so thankful for and understanding the name of my, of what not only my my role, uh, but my calling is to understand that that is, that is what we live in. We live in the shadow of grace. So to be, to be able to be reminded each day that that is what we are supposed to embody, I, I am very thankful for. My last name is Park and my husband's last name was also Park. We had to actually check if we were distantly related before we started <laughs> dating and uh, I tell my husband to this day that I married him for his last name so I didn't have to change my stuff.
1: <laughs> so that's me. Excellent. Thank you. But Rabbi it's Amy. interesting
2: because grace <coughs> means chesed in, in Hebrew which is loving kindness um, and unmerited love and so I feel like yeah, We need to have this conversation. <laughs> Hain. Hain? Hain. Hain. Oh, okay. We have to
4: have another Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So Amy Rose Bernstein is my uh, name. Uh, I always say that um, actually Amy Rose Bernstein never got born, I assumed her identity. I'm adopted. Uh, and so there's a part of me that have felt for a very long time that Amy Rose Bernstein was somebody who didn't get born, whose identity I kind of stole. Um, Bernstein is my family name. Uh, it, it carries a lot of Jewish history in that. I was just telling Grace, uh, my great, great, great grandmother stole in Russia a passport off a visiting American Jew whose name was Bernstein and gave it to her son who was about to be impressed into the Tsar's army as Jews and other poor people were uh, for a lifetime of service. And she said, get out you have to get out. So he went through Ellis Island under Bernstein. So of course, he wasn't going to say that's not really me, right? So we, so we are now Bernsteins, but it's stolen. When people say, are you related to the Bernsteins of, I'm like, nope.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> I don't, you didn't even let me finish. Wh- We're not related to the Bernsteins from anywhere because mm-hmm. we stole it. Uh, and uh, Rose, I was named after my great, great, My great-grandmother, my grandfather's mother, uh, in our tradition, in Jewish tradition, you name after the most recently deceased relative in Ashkenazi, Eastern European Jewish tradition, to keep their name alive in the people Israel. So that was Rose Bernstein. My parents thought that was cruel in 1965 to do to a child to name her Rose Bernstein. So they wanted a short, secular first name. Um, My mother was in the hospital having um, gynecological surgery of some kind when my birth mother went into labor. And so my father told my mother, finally, after a night of my uh, birth mother going into false labor over and over and over, finally in the morning, my father, with this haggard expression, my mother thought she was dying of cancer because he was coming with horrible news from the way he looked. And uh, he said, we have a daughter. Uh, And on the radio was playing Once in Love with Amy, Always in Love with Amy. And so Mm -hmm. I am Amy Rose (laughs) Goldstein.
5: How am I supposed to top that? I so, I yeah, I'm not going to try. Uh, my name is Salam Mariadi. So, Salam, as probably many of you know, means peace, like shalom, and uh, it, it is a common um, word, not so much a common name. You don't find too many Salams. Uh, you find a lot of Ahmeds, Mahmeds, uh, Mahmuds uh, in in our in our community. Um, and actually there are times when you wouldn't say salam because it's an attribute of God. Uh, a person would actually be named Abdul Salam, which means the servant of God, servant of the, of, of, uh, the one of peace. So um, that's my name and my last name is Al-Mariati. And uh, it comes from a family I was told, uh, Mariati, Mariah, means mirror. So apparently my family had a tradition of making mirrors. Um, mm-hmm. Or so, so it's said. Um, um, my family actually fled persecution from Iraq in 63, so we don't have I don't have that much connection with uh, my family in, in Iraq, because I've lived here uh, most of my life. Uh, but whenever I go up to Muslims and I say, you say, Assalamu alaikum, right? And so they say, Wa alaikum assalam, uh, peace be unto you, uh, and unto you be peace. And then they ask me, so what's your name? I say, salam, and they go, Walaikum salam. now what's your name? That's about as much.
1: So this is the Muslim who's on first. Yeah, the Muslim who's on first.
5: That, that version of who's
6: on first. Well, that's kind of hard to top, too, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my name is Robert Buswell. I'm a junior. So I was, of course, a Bobby, which I hated throughout much of my life until I was finally able to progress to being Bob, which I liked even less. (laughs) Unfortunately, I uh, decided to leave the U.S. to become a Buddhist monk when I was 19. And I got progressively other sorts of names over the course of the years. I was first ordained in Thailand and was given the name Rochono, which means something like luminosity or radiance, which I quite liked actually as a name. Um, eventually, I went to Hong Kong for a year and then to Korea for five years. And in Korea, I was reordained, given another name <coughs> that was He that Myung. Was, uh, this would be like the brightness of wisdom. And I thought, that's a great name. That's really something to aspire to. Hmm. Uh, When I came back to the US then, and decided that my real calling was as a scholar. I thought, well, I can't be him young here. That seems a little strange. Uh, People think I'm Hare Krishna or something. So I decided to go back to the name Robert which I had never used before, but uh, I thought, well, that's actually kind of a nice name. And it turned out that Robert also means like shining brightness too. So I thought, well, okay, so there's some some continuity there and that's something kind of maybe worth living up to. So I'm not sure there's much brightness left, but at least it's still something to, uh, to aspire towards. That's right.
1: Fantastic. Well, I hope that you, I mean, I have known Salam, I think almost 20 years and I didn't mm-hmm. know the origin of your last name. So I hope that you, Uh, got to know a little bit something about the people next to you and um, in my work we see that the ability to know yourself and know someone else is the basis around which you can form relationships and then begin to do really transformational work and that's subject of what we're going to be talking about right now, um, the things that ground the social justice work of particular religious traditions and the way in which they show up in the world and then what what happens in the world as a result. And so just to start off, I'd like um, if you could each share a story. Uh, of where the impulse for social justice comes from for you or what grounds you in doing the work of social justice. And by social justice, I think we mean the remodeling of society in in a way that is equitable for all, in a way that creates um, a uh, a society worth living in for people who are uh, from all walks of life, that there is equity in uh, the formation of the institutions and the living out of the kind of dreams that a society produces. So if we could just maybe, I'll start with you, uh, Rabbi Amy. Um, I think r- right now in the
4: West, we are so identified personally and um, socially as consumers, as we are what we can buy in goods and services. We are what we can acquire. And I don't mean just in permanent things, I mean even in experiences. Um, and that causes so much tension between like what I want for me and what experiences I want so I can become my full self and then what I want to give and make sure other people have room um, to experience. Um, For us classically as Jews, it it goes back to none of this is ours. None of this belongs to us, which is, you know, like again, so, so Western that we own something. And, you know, Torah teaches from the get-go, that we don't own the land, we can't own land, because the land belongs to God, right? Like, we don't own the produce of our fields, We, we can own a field, meaning we get to use what's there, but we have to leave the margins of the field for the poor, so that they get to come harvest, just like every Israelite. It was an agricultural society at some some points. Um, And so people came to harvest. That was what you did. That was the economy of the time. And Torah says, you don't ever get to own all the way to the margins because it never has belonged to you. You get to use it. You get to benefit from it if you do so responsibly. uh, And all of it can never belong to you it belongs to itself it belongs to god and so kind of that that's a starting place of we we don't get to own it all we we must take care of everybody it's not an option for me to have 100% and somebody to have nothing it's just not an option
1: islam it sort of relates to the muslim the islamic notion of amana right of of entrustment mm-hmm. is that what comes to mind for you when you think of social justice or how is how is social justice framed in islam
5: uh, I think uh, justice is uh, in, in, in the Quran in at least 20, 20 verses uh, that you, you can name. And the idea of justice comes from actually Tawheed, which is the belief in one God. Uh, the unity of God uh, determines that you have to believe in the unity of the human family and of human equality. Um, and so when we say there is no God but the one God that really means that I am not going to submit to any other man or any other power I believe that God is the all powerful more powerful than anything I see in his creation Um, and so it it is part uh, of the being that you uh, pursue justice and the Quran refers to it uh, in so many ways for example it says uh, O you who believe you have been made to establish equity Qist is the Arabic word. Um, and you, have to be, you will be witnesses to God even if you have to testify against yourself or your parents or your family. Uh, and in another uh, verse, uh, Surah 16, verse 90, it says, God has commanded justice. I didn't hear legal justice, uh, whereas Qist was equity. But God has commanded justice and the doing of what is good and generosity. Um, and he shuns uh, that which, which is shameful and, and ira- irrational and oppressive. Uh, so, and then the verse ends. So, remind yourselves of these points um, as an admonition from God. So, it, it is it is imbued in, in our culture, and even you know before I was religious, when I was going to UCLA, um, I was a biochemistry major. Uh, But my extracurricular activities involved being uh, uh, in solidarity with the people of El Salvador, CISPIS, and following uh, events in the Muslim world. And at that time, it was the Islamic revolution in Iran, which uh, was the first nonviolent revolution in the region um, and uh, toppling a dictator uh, before all these other dictators like Ceausescu or the one in the Philippines... uh, was was toppled and so it was was an exciting time and I was also following um, uh, events at my mosque because I was president of the youth group so I was one of those rare people that my extracurricular activities became my career and um, I didn't obviously I didn't pursue biochemistry I I do this work now Um, and then the last thing I I just want to say about uh, about uh, justice is that we believe that every a human being was breathed with a spirit from, God, from the Creator, from God. And so within us is that godly spirit. And so we do have a moral compass. And as Amy says, we, we also believe that nothing is, is ours, that those who give, give from what God has, has given them. We're just basically we're, we're borrowing what God has given us. And if we spend for what is good, it's to our own benefit.
1: I think that's a good place for maybe you to pick up about Christian notions of dignity and justice uh, and the way that humans are made and formed.
2: Well, just in listening to my colleagues here, it's amazing to see how much we hold in common with one another and how we we see God in a very uh, similar light, that God is a God of love, God is a God of compassion, and God is a God of justice. And we, who have all been made in the image of God, have been called to live out this life in that same way. For those of us who are Christians, we are we consider ourselves to, to we're called Christians because we are little Christs. We are to model ourselves after Christ who came. And his entire mission on this planet was the idea of self sacrifice, of putting this world before his own needs. And Jesus was a man who was concerned, completely concerned, with the notion of justice, completely concerned about making sure that those in society, uh, we see his teachings time and time again. He's looking at the marginalized people in the world. He's looking at the people who were outcasts, he's looking at women and children and, and people who were lepers and bringing them in and saying, who are these people? And how can we minister to these people? One of his most famous parables that we see is that of the Good Samaritan. What is the story? The story is of a man who is walking through dangerous territory and at the cost and expense of his own life comes and ministers to this person at great cost to him, at great sacrifice to him. And this is, Jesus is saying, this is what we're supposed to model our life to and with and we're supposed to look at what it means to not think of ourselves first but to serve other and others and this is what Jesus modeled for us and this is um, what he's saying this is our God our God is a God of compassion our God is a God who brings everybody in our God is a God who's calling everybody into the tent and saying we all belong together and so I think, you know, it rings true for, for what my, my brother and sister are saying here as well.
1: And if we move to the Buddhist tradition as a non-theistic tradition, the, the idea that you're embodying a, a notion of, what, of divinity or that uh, God is imbued you with a certain identity doesn't necessarily ring true. And yet I, I recently heard the Dalai Lama say to some youth that their job was to go out and become little Dalai Lamas, almost like little Christs. <laughs> so how do you deal with the notion of where the impulse for justice comes from
6: well i think the buddhist tradition is going to be very much the outlier here today and i kind of enjoy that spot because i think it provides a very different way of thinking about what our what we are and what our place is in the world when um, gina first brought up the possibility of joining you for the event today i was really struck well what is the word in buddhist languages for justice (coughs) i couldn't really think of a word that really corresponds very well But if you go through the Buddhist tradition, the one uh, feature that I think carries through all traditions, regardless of whether they're early India or much later Japanese, is the notion of causality. There are reasons why things occur. And our role as human beings is to understand what these reasons are so that we can learn both to respond to reality as we find it on the ground, but also look for ways of removing the things that cause that reality. And so justice would really come, I think, from, from sort of understanding what are the reasons why injustice occurs in the world? How can you remove those causes? What, are the, what, what, what process could one follow in removing such causes? And in that way, I think sort of in effect, effect justice. But I think in Buddhism, uh, the goal of social justice is, um, is really not central to the tradition. It's a certainly part of it. And you've all have heard the, the word karma before, I'm sure which means really just what you do. Karma is what you do, and there's a, there are effects from those, those actions that you take and the choices and the intentions that frame those actions. Uh, so it's really a karma plus its effects is really what we mean by the, the idea of karma. So karma is, in the sense, um, is in the sense something which one is trying to manipulate in Buddhism. I think um, uh, go, go the Buddhists go through and try to analyze very carefully. You know, what is it that leads to benefits for oneself and others? Uh, what is it that leads to the detriment of oneself and others? And we try to understand what those processes are. But the real goal is to find a way out of the whole cycle that sustains those processes. And um, thus, rather than justice, I think liberation is more really the goal of Buddhism. And liberation means uh, finding a way out of this cycle of justice and injustice, where we um, constantly are defining ourselves in terms of, um, of these um, causally based products, in a sense. So, so I think it leads to a very different way of thinking about what, what we do as, uh, as human beings and why we're doing it.
4: I was just going to say for, for Judaism, I think we locate the causality in appetite. Right? Mm-hmm. As human beings, we have an appetite. We have—we want. We want to eat. We want to enjoy eating. We want to have sex. We want to enjoy sex. We want to—we we have appetites. And so, the whole concept of mitzvah of you know of obligation uh, is about saying, okay, we're going to we're going to accept upon ourselves the obligation to rein in our appetites mm-hmm. because it is one of the causes of suffering. Like mm-hmm. one of the causes of injustice is our greed. Mm-hmm. But I have to have some acquisitive desire or I wouldn't put myself forward to work hard to achieve, right? So um, we wouldn't have children if we, in some paradigms, uh, if we didn't have <laughs> sex a certain kind. So... um there's nothing bad about appetite. Appetite is, a, is just a part of what it means to be human. It's about whether or not we can accept that our ethical, moral, spiritual sensibilities be brought to bear on those appetites so that we can enjoy them fully within the range of what's permitted and not permitted with a consciousness of not wanting to cause suffering out of the, um, out of the fulfillment of my own um, appetite.
6: But wouldn't appetite in- inevitably involve suffering? Because those appetites are going to be constantly changing, inevitably. And so the things that we, that we are aspiring to, that we're seeking, uh, whether it's justice, whether it's children, whether it's occupations, those things are going to change. And yes, believe change. me, having
4: children is suffering. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will yeah. not deny that for a moment. There's also such glory in the changing nature of it all. If one can embrace the fact that it's not going to stay the same and that's of course the source and i know in buddhist teaching the source of so much of our suffering is that it's not going to stay the same right it's going to change um but if we can embrace that then i mean i I like that i enjoy my meals right I, i like it that i have an appetite i like it that i then get to satisfy that appetite and then the struggle is always how do i not grasp for more right and that's the teaching about limits
2: um it, just listening to what you were saying, Cynthia, in terms of how you felt like you were a little bit of an outlier, um, I don't know. I see that there's some, th- there's some similarity in the sense that I think that we would all agree that justice on a daily basis and transformation in all of our lives, those things, justice and transformation, all of the change, those are all born out. In very small things in our lives, every day, right? In daily movement, in the daily things that we do, we see change come come about through very small actions. And so I think that, you know, kind of in response to what you're saying in terms of a cycle and um, breaking a cycle, there is a sense that we are called to be mindful of what we're doing every single day. And are we a part? You know, you're you're saying you're, you're you your terminology cycle, but in terms of transformational change, how are we moving toward this concept, this huge concept of justice? How are we moving toward this huge concept of how do I change and transform and and be different than I was yesterday? Those are all born out in very small acts of justice, kindness, compassion, love. We see that every day. But
5: are you also saying that the, the
2: desire for it, you. Can't
5: like the you. I forgot. I don't. I
1: don't Are you also saying though that the appetite for justice itself is part of the is part of samsara, is part of the, the cycle of of suffering?
6: It, it is actually, yeah. Can I you say more about that?
1: Because I do think that that's a really interesting mark of distinction mm-hmm. for the system that you're describing.
6: Well, ultimately, I mean, if you look really uh, even at very early Buddhist texts. The one thing the Buddha really rails against, and he says, is the source of all of the dissension and the and the uh, problems of society, is people clinging to their view of what they think is right and wrong, and that clinging is is ultimately what creates problems in society and leads eventually then to suffering, and so what the Buddhist goal would be, I think, is to find a way to sort of remove the point of view, the point of view that thinks I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And by doing that, one is going to be able to have a much more expansive sense of what what true justice actually is. So if you try to impose your sense of what you think is right or wrong or justice or injustice on others, inevitably you're, you're, you're creating the cycle that's going to lead to still further injustice, I think, actually. So the ultimate goal would be to find a way to let go of all views and to try to you know the Buddhists always talk about non-self, and you'll see this term, you know, all throughout the tradition. But what they really are, are, are meaning by that is not that there is no self, but that you kind of remove the sense of a fixed point of view, the point of view that thinks I'm right and therefore others must be wrong. It's very
2: interesting that you're saying. I'm sorry. Oh, good. It's go ahead. just I was just shown the other day a picture of two people looking at the number six on the ground and one was standing above it one was standing below it and the caption underneath it said just because you are right does not mean that i am wrong and you know it's, it's very interesting for us to think especially because we all come from different points of faith um and we have very different uh things that we hold strong as the foundation of our faith right. um it's very interesting to think about in that light
5: well, I, you know, in in the Quran, in the story of Adam and Eve, uh, the lesson there is, is that human beings will err, mm-hmm. and they will fall into temptation, mm-hmm. and that you know, in 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 my my colleague's uh, uh, Robert's uh, um, description of liberating yourself and, and towards the non-self, I take it this is the Buddhist uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me. That is actually the, uh, the word jihad which has been misinterpreted, misconstrued, distorted to mean holy war. The, the, the Prophet said the greatest struggle is the inner struggle. It, it is the inner jihad. It's that jihad against my base impulses and base desires. And to liberate myself from that, so I'm, I'm in command of those desires, that is true freedom. Uh, and that is liberation. Um, and and so the 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 constant struggle is to abstain from that which is evil. And that's why I believe that we have in our religion and in, in many other traditions the the uh, instrument of fasting as a way to cleanse oneself and to remove yourself from that which is only material to actually beginning to nourish the soul because your soul is starving throughout the year by constantly jumping into that temptation and that and this temptation and just feeding yourself materialistically there has to be that balance between the material and the spiritual and your soul is 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 starving for that kind of nurturing as well,
4: well what I heard Robert saying is is what we talked about when we talked about putting this panel together on some degree when we were exploring it together is talking about over-identification with a point of view, like that, that, that a certain way of looking at things becomes my identity rather than the issue that we're talking about. That is a serious, serious problem in all of the many complicated conversations that this world needs to be having right now about really important stuff, is that we've, bec- we've made certain things our identity. Rather than an issue for us to have a conversation about, because once it's my identity, I somehow have to compromise the stuff that's most basic to me to hear you and affirm that you're right. If you say it's a six, but I'm standing on the other side, right? So I'm wrong. If it's a zero sum game, and this is what we also talked about, if it's a zero sum game, then it's either a six or a nine. And if I acknowledge it's a six, I lose somehow. And that is definitely a lot of what's happening, is that we're over identifying with it has to be a six. It it can be a six and a nine and a lot of it depends on where you're standing and the real teaching from Buddhism that I have so appreciated is how do I take myself out of my being attached to it being a six to see just what it might be like for someone else who sees it as a nine. I don't have to see it as a nine, but can I put myself enough in the shoes of somebody who does to say that's the reality for them? What does that then mean about how I address what's really happening? Them.
5: And, th- and that is actually the, the 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 lesson of compassion. Compassion means putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and feeling what they're feeling and seeing what they're seeing. And unless you have compassion, I don't see any real value of religion. Religion without compassion, religion without justice, religion without these these use, turns into dogma and turns into just trying to prove your point over somebody else's point and usually that that's not between religions a lot of it happens within religion the the, the, the greatest battles are those within the religious community right. over who's right and who's wrong and that's why we create sects it's an it's an unfortunate human aberration as opposed to saying okay this is your interpretation this is my interpretation okay we'll let god or the creator or, or whoever we believe in um as the one who will ultimately decide who's right and who's wrong. But my job on this earth is to do good work. So how can I I stay busy doing the work as opposed to arguing for the sake of argument over which theology is right or which dogma is is more correct than another?
2: And I think that just stems from, again, us being human beings, that, that we always want to be right. And we... We don't, no, don't. <laughs> we don't want to be cut off at the knee. We don't want to be cut off at the knee so right? And, and that's part of human nature, and, and, and I think that that's what all of our traditions are trying to teach us, is that there's part of us that we have to be able to let go and to understand that our creator, our maker, is able to help us to surpass this, this human, this banality of, of who we are, to understand that... Um, we can be transformed and we're in this process of sanctification we're in this process of being made holy each day Um, and and we see it differently and played out in different ways but that's the whole concept of what we believe it means to be a disciple of whatever we we believe in that we're in this transformational process that we don't have to be afraid of of that
1: it seems though that there is there are some lines that are hard to not cross, right? Or there are are things around which we can have polite disagreement and there are things around which where we have deep moral existential feelings of the world shattering, if my view is not shared. So how, how do you navigate that? What is it within your religious tradition that helps you frame the disagreement beyond the perspective? Is there anything that roots your understanding of sort of multiple ways of being or, or that is able to temper your your notions of not getting too attached or uh, to be able to deal with somebody to be able to deal with somebody for wh- with whom you have fundamental and existential disagreement but still maintain some level of, of relationship or is that only something that happens as long as the issue is one that's not too important?
5: I, I mean, you know, again, for me, in my tradition, when I read the Quran, Quran the Quran even tells the prophet that he cannot compel people to believe so God created us out of free will and if, if he's telling the prophet um, don't, don't bother trying to compel people to believe and there's the verse in chapter 2, 256 there's no compulsion in matters of faith and the Quran says for those who want to believe let them believe for those who don't want to believe let them not believe I mean, if I want to follow my religion, then I have to believe a A, that God created us uh, in in free will, and I will not follow anybody that tries to intimidate anyone. I I don't want to be even if they claim to be of my religion or of my group. That's the one thing I'm intolerant about. It's about about uh, other, uh, other people's lack of understanding of this concept of free will. Um, and uh, and then and then uh, on top of that, um, I, I I believe that you know unless it results in something that is harmful to people or oppressive to people, yes, there's there's so much room to discuss. But so many times we already say, okay, this person is an enemy or this person is, is an opponent, and therefore there's no use in talking. And I think that's a problem in our society today: is that there's really there is no national conversation about these issues it, you know members of congress you know uh, I was with the senator uh, on Friday for, uh, for a political conference and he was boasting about how he's bipartisan and he's this and he's that and I'm looking at it well yeah but you're still part of this club And and this is what people don't get is that they're supposed to be there to serve society and therefore you have to represent everybody in your district not just who you agree with and that's why I believe and I think this is probably shared by my other members of the panel. Religious groups should never be in the business of governance. Because when, you, when you're a religious group and you have an ideology, then you are expecting people to submit to the ideology and you lose the, the essence of religion, which is to submit to God so that you can free yourself from the chains of other people.
4: I think there's a lot of places where it's really hard. And, and I think there are some bottom lines And there are some places where we can't agree, we won't agree. And I'm from a tradition that says, so then you act. You act for justice in the ways that you understand that. That means you're going to clash with other people acting on the other side of that issue. But that's what we're called into is acting. We're called into arguing with each other. We're called into doing those things that we think are going to push our agenda forward. If we really believe, bottom line, that this is not negotiable, right? Throwing homosexuals off the top of a building is not acceptable. So... marrying kids off at 11, little girls, to be essentially raped by men twice their age is not acceptable. So, (laughs) I'm not going to compromise on that. And I'm not going to compromise on my beliefs that that's wrong. What I don't want to ever do is demonize somebody else's understanding of that's okay and that's right. I need to try very hard to understand how they've been raised, what they think, what their worldview is, how and why that works in their society so that I don't demonize or otherize somebody. But my progressive Jewish tradition calls me into acting in every way I can to further what sometimes is an agenda that's very different from somebody else's. That's called the political process. That's called social action. That's called protest. That's called getting arrested if you need
5: to. Um, But I don't think think we're talking about two different things. I I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I could... Sit in the room. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I have something where, you know, um, when we're dealing with, for example, the Middle East, and there are obviously uh, wide uh, differences uh, on what's happening in the Middle East, uh, from dealing with people who are trying to justify the occupation uh, of Palestinians, uh, to people now in our government uh, financing and supporting uh, tyranny in the Gulf uh, by uh, cavorting with dictators there and creating more war. Uh, but at the same time, I'm dealing with these people every day who may or may not think uh, that that, that, is, uh, that is right. But we have to create a conversation in order to change the frame of thinking. And a lot of it comes from simplistic division of the world between those people who are barbaric and the rest who are civilized and and sometimes when we when we do that we lose the sense of civ- what what it means to be civilized is when we give judgment to what is what we think is happening but is not happening um and, and 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 we're not really talking to the people there we're relying on views that are given to us by Um, others who have this power to give us uh, that information and it's usually by governments who have an influence about what is happening around the world and then we we create this idea that okay the other side is evil and this is is, uh, a battle between good and evil yes it is a battle between good and evil but we should look at the evil within us first because if we start thinking that we are more civilized than other parts of the world I think that's the step to becoming uncivilized
2: I was, I resound a lot with what Rabbi Amy is saying in the sense that um, in each faith tradition, there's going to be a certain point where um, there's going to be a divergence in what we believe. That's just the bottom line. The four of us here represent, I think, um, just by the nature of the four of us being here, willing to talk in this forum, uh, represents a group of people who are, uh, are of different faiths who are willing to see the commonality between us and to understand that. But absolutely, the reality of the situation is we come from different faith religions, and there's going to be a certain point where the commonality stops, and we will not agree on certain things. But we always have to come back to seeing what we do hold in common, understanding. um, And I think that there is a difference between, like what Salam is saying, this understanding of... um, Everything nowadays is always us and them it 's always us and others it 's what pulls us apart and we have to look at what we what we do hold in common and also what the difference between um, particular religious understanding versus basic morals and ethics and and both of you touched on that as well and those I think those are very different as well those are those are black and white things that we can see in our lives that in the human experience, we understand things to be right or to be wrong um, outside of what our different religious tenets are.
4: Well, and, I, and I believe it's, it's not just where we agree. It's, it's what can we work on together. Like What are flowing out of some of the places that, that we converge? With? What, what are the projects? What are the things? Like, nobody's going to argue about hunger. Right. Like, nobody's going right. to argue about getting clean water to children in this world right. uh, or educating or girls or, or homeless i mean right who's gonna argue that right so i mean i feel like if we can just start working on the stuff that we can work on together i, I i'm not i the differences are what they are the bottom lines yeah. where they diverge are what they are and they're gonna exactly. they're gonna be what they are but it, but we have no excuse for not starting to <laughs> to work together and right. put a little way more time and attention and focus and, and resources towards What we
5: all agree on. I don't don't think we're. My my problem is, I don't even think we're talking enough to understand how to work together. Right. I think people take their positions, and then, you know, like Grace said, it's us versus them, it's good against evil, it's this very simplistic view of the world uh, that, that we don't, and we end up not really helping the people that we claim that we're trying to help, whether it's the 11 year old child, you know, who's suffering from being raped uh, and, and being given off to families uh, because they're poor uh, or the homosexual or the, or the religious minorities or, or the people suffering uh, from uh, occupation there's so many things that we can do I don't see the religious communities having enough conversation at least not at the national level maybe my local synagogue and my local mosque and my local church yes we get together and we, we basically commiserate uh, over the situation, uh, but is is the Islamic Society of North America and the United Jewish Appeal, or you know, I'm just coming up with names, but you know what I mean? Are are these national organizations? Are they having a conversation about social justice and what we can do together on these issues? I don't see it.
1: Well, and I, and think, I think that's a shame. I think what's interesting about that is, is, so when I first started doing this work, it was about 20 years ago, and to sit with someone who was different from you was seen as a default good. Right? It, was, it was accepted and thought as sort of inherently powerful that people who were different would come together and have a conversation. And what I've noticed over the course of the last two decades is that's been treated with a default level of suspicion. So when Now. Now. So when the Islamic Society of North America and the American Jewish Committee get together, right. there, is, there and they do get together, there is a, a sense that that itself is a problem, rather than that the quality of the discussion that is being had is sort of habituating us of learning how to be together in a way that we might have lost over the last couple of decades. And I, I wonder if that's just what I see from my perspective, or if you're noticing something similar.
2: I would agree with that.
1: Oh, yeah,
5: absolutely. I, yeah. Mean, yeah, I think immediately the Islamic side of North America gets attacked by, you know, those who are... Um, um, I don't know how to... D- you, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> 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 Just and, uh, as I'm sure in the same in the, in the Jewish community, that absolutely. the American Jewish community would get criticized. What are you doing with the other side? Absolutely. What are you doing with them? Uh, these are radicals. These are the people that are causing the suffering of our people, and so on and so forth. And... I, but I, I'm sure it's in every tradition, you have to sit down with the other. You have to humanize the other. In the Quran it says, good and evil are not equal, repel evil with that which is good, so the one with whom there's enmity becomes as if he's your closest and warmest friend. So, yes, there it, there needs to be a process of social transformation from enmity to friendship. God knows Islam has enough enemies. We don't need any more enemies so we need to start talking about building friendships, even if I agree with you only 10%. Well, yeah. let's work on the 10% and make it 20%. That's right. but, but to say, well, these people disagree with us on this and that, it's very dogmatic. But unfortunately, that simplistic view, that black and white, like in politics, that's what resonates in social media especially. So it becomes very toxic. So that when I do want to sit down with somebody uh, from the American Jewish Committee or from uh, uh, other, other groups, I'm accused of betraying the community. And, and the, by the same token, when J Street invites Muslims, they're attacked as well. Uh, that They're betraying uh, the cause there.
2: But, well, I, I just really agree with what Amy is saying in terms of we can talk till we're blue in the face. But I think that what we all carry in all our different faith traditions is that that's why we believe. We don't just believe for ourselves, to hold it in ourselves. We believe in order to take action in some way, no matter what that action looks like. For a Buddhist monk, that action might look very differently. For a Jewish person, that might look... For all of us, it will look different. But that is the point of why we, we believe what we believe each one of us has humans we have to believe something we cling on to something that we believe in order for us to take action in some way in our lives so what will then this conversation take? where will it take us to Um, and what does it mean to actually be in this process of of walking together Uh, Micah 6.8 tells us what has God called you to do human mortal what has God called you to do it is to to love justice to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God what does that mean then to do those three things Mm -hmm. what action are you going to take that's what we're all asked to do in our own faith traditions how can we walk (coughs) and so for Christians we're walking in the path that Christ set for us we're modeling sacrificial love um, sacrificial actions what what does that mean and each of our faith traditions um, call us to take action in some way
1: I'm wondering actually what you're feeling uh, particularly called towards right now Uh, it seems as though in many ways the world is uh, undone in so many places. Um, is there something that you're feeling particularly compelled to take action on, either because of the scope of the problem or the scope of the opportunity to make um, some impact on it? Maybe I'll start with you, Professor.
6: Well, I guess I have a rather different perspective on, on much of what we're talking about here, because um, in the Buddhist context, uh, so much of the focus is really on, on um, tra- transforming one's own perspective on the world and that that transformation will then lead to transformations in society. So rather than working with society, one really has to work on oneself. And um, I I find actually, as I've gotten older especially, um, I'm less and less really concerned about what society itself decides to do or not to do. Society has its own sets of causes and conditions that lead in different directions. And there's only so much one person can really do to affect much change in society as a whole. But you have complete control over what you choose to do about yourself. And the way that you then choose to interact with those people with whom you are in close connection. In my case, for example, it's not just you know family or friends, but it's, it's my students in particular. And um, I really find, uh, as I've gotten older especially, um, it's much more important to me to try to find a way to mirror to my students what what... What the Buddhist message actually is, rather than just teaching about what Buddhists say, this is really what Buddhists do and why they do what they do, and why you know I always tell them that what we're trying to learn in class is you know what do Buddhists believe and how do they act upon those beliefs then That really is sort of the goal and um, so in some sense, too, I think Buddhists are much better. At talking about kind of generic, you know, all human beings, or even all beings, let alone human beings, rather than specific human beings. So uh, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the text about great compassion toward all sentient beings, but there's very little discussion about how you really deal with somebody who who needs help, or who is starving, or who is experiencing injustice, whatever it might be. That seems to be sort of a, of less concern because if somehow you can solve the core problem, which is the problem of how do we avoid always injecting our own personal point of view into all of our interactions with the people around us, if we can find a way how to how to do that, much of these other problems will just inevitably be solved. And um, so I, I guess what I'm trying to do nowadays <laughs> is just try to be a better human being and try to. Uh, I mean, I, I had this very nice email from a student uh, yesterday who I don't remember, remember at all. But um, he wrote to me and he said, you know, it was just I just wanted you to know how I really appreciated the kindness you showed me, and I'm going to try to do that myself in my own life. And I really wish I could remember what I did for for this man. <laughs> 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 but I, yeah. you know, I think that's just sort of the goal. I think. just try to be that way with everybody as best I can. Even if I can't remember what I did in particular. <laughs>
5: Well, I I agree. I mean, you you can only do what's available to you, but there are so many opportunities that come before you every day, whether it's helping a student or helping a neighbor, uh, uh, helping somebody find a job, um, helping somebody find sanctuary, uh, helping somebody avoid homelessness in, in Los Angeles, helping somebody with their problems with the police. Uh, these are opportunities before us that we can we can work on here. It doesn't need major political conventions uh, or religious conventions for that matter to determine how to go forward, how to move forward. For example, we had a, a family, um, I worked in Highland Park and there was this man, it was it was written up, written up in the LA Times, made a lot of news, Romulo, who dropped his daughter off uh, at a school called Avance um, in Highland Park and he was picked up by ICE. And and he was going to be deported. And we worked with the the school uh, to reverse that. And the school itself really did most of the work. We just showed our support for it. But we found out later that there was a Muslim family suffering the same thing. It was a chemistry professor in Kansas. Uh, His name uh, is Jamal. And he was uh, picked up by ICE and was ready to be sent to Pakistan. And we intervened with uh, the same school... And uh, there was a coalition that was put together. And it, 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 I'm not sure if we caused it, but we did something about it. And eventually, uh, the man was released back to his family. And if, the, if there are little things that we should do, if, if, if Amy or Grace or Robert tell me, can you sign here for helping uh, a family? That's the least I could do. I'd do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that going to change you know reverse the injustice of the world probably not but if if all of us do what whatever little we can do and it builds then it eventually will make an impact if we if we came together and talked about the problem of homelessness and how we're we're shoving homeless people um, you know near the the riverbank in, in Los Angeles and how they're it's becoming more and more crowded and it's becoming uh, uncivilized uh, and for a, a place as rich as our area is, and for us not to do anything, I find that to be uh, moving away from our religious traditions, no matter what religion you, you, you claim to be a part of. And so, at the very least, we, we talk to the mayor and we work and we support and projects that would help alleviate the problem of homelessness. And the same thing for relations between communities and police. Bree knows exactly. The predicament that Muslims are in right now. Everywhere we go, we have to say we condemn 9/11 before we can start having a conversation about anything else. So we are securitized as being either a national security liability or an asset. Uh, so we have we have to we have to um, uh, deprogram people into into putting Muslims uh, in, into that into that uh, uh, that frame. But at the same time, Muslims can't isolate themselves more and more from society because then we create a problem of ghettoization of Muslims in Western society, like they're suffering in Europe. And we cannot afford to do that either. So we have to, as American Muslims, even, even though we may not like the situation in the post 9 11 era, and it was out of our control, it had nothing to do with us, we have to address the problems that the other person is seeing when they believe that Muslims are not condemning terrorism. Uh, even though we condemn it uh, any time it, it pops up, and we 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 come up with uh, almost uh, a thousand a list of a thousand times when uh, you, you find uh, a thousand Muslim organizations condemning uh, that incident. So it's it is a, it is a daily struggle. There's no there's no one right way to go about it. But the bottom line is whatever little you can do, you should do.
4: So I heard you ask something about what are we particularly excited about, or um, on fire about, and/or is there something that, because of its timeliness, you know, because there's some hope for it? <laughs> so um, I agree with Robert that the hunger and the longing for justice is a path of suffering. <laughs> it just Jews are good at suffering. We're, we're really good at it. Take suffering away from us, and like, yeah, that's a lot <laughs> of our culture. That's, and our humor that's gone. So um, we, because we get it, like, you know, okay, so yes, I, it really is suffering to long for, but but we also know that we have to work for it. So I think um, uh, As Salam said, I mean, w- and Grace, we, we need to work together, we need to find more coalitions, we need to find more ways of coming together and that starts with relationships, it starts relationships of trust, of, of knowing who each other are, understanding each other's concerns and issues and challenges and all that. Two things that I feel right now, one because of its timeliness, um, critically is the environment. If we don't turn this ship soon, it's going to be too late to turn it. And So it's incumbent upon us as human beings who are responsible for every other species and their danger and their suffering and their health and their well-being. We have to turn that ship now. There's just not not an option to say, okay, well, we'll leave that to whoever because we know, the science tells us, if we don't get on this soon, it's going to be too late to turn that around. Um, The other one I feel um, somewhat hopeful about is, is the education of girls and women, Um, that we know that when we educate girls and we educate women and we give them access to making a living, then all boats rise. It it is one of the answers to poverty in so many places uh, is educating half the population to be able to contribute to how many how many solutions are in the minds and hearts and spirits of little girls who are not given an education, who could cure who knows what or um, help solve you know, these worlds pro- this world's problems. So um, I'm feeling particularly hopeful that we see the impact right away of educating uh, girls and women, and, and I'm very hopeful about what it means if we really take that on.
2: Oh, for me, what I'm particularly excited is... I, I'm actually currently... Um, doing another degree, and my project is going to be on the theology of community, what it means to exist together. And the entirety for us as Christians is understanding that our theology is not complicated. It's it's really not complicated. And for us, it's loving God, learning from Christ, and the entirety of the gospel is serving other people. And what does that mean when we look at the whole of community and, and understanding that we live in community? And how can we learn from one another? Um, And I'm excited about that. I I regularly sit with uh, Rabbi Rubin and and I listen. And we have to get beyond this place where we think that we know everything and we've got it covered, but that we can listen to other people and think, wow, I can learn so much by sitting at this person's feet. And I might not agree with everything, but at least I can learn and understand a little bit more outside of me and and this and and what this is and so thereby then we can make changes little changes that are incrementally they could be small but every one of us have heard that story about that little boy that's walking along the beach it's a really favorite pastor story that everybody tells little girl there's a little, <laughs> there's a little child walking on a beach and this this old person comes up and says you know, this this kid is is tossing starfish back into the beach, and this this old person comes and says, "What are you doing?" You know, and they're, "Oh, I'm I'm picking up a starfish and I'm throwing it back in the ocean," and the old person says, "That you're wasting your time. You are not making a difference. Look at all the millions of the starfish that are sitting on the sand." And he picks up another starfish and he throws it back in the ocean and says, I made a difference to that one. <laughs> and, and that's what life is about, right? You made a difference to one student in your life. And that one student is going to make a difference in someone else's life. And so that's how we elicit change in this world. And, and so for me, what I'm excited about is the understanding, the theology of what it means to be in community, but also a hospitable community. And how can we learn from one another's differences and and grow from that and transform from that?
1: Thank you. Um, This has been... Just incredibly dynamic and insightful. So thank you all. We're going to open it up for questions. Uh, And I sometimes people are confused about questions uh, because they they end with a question mark, not an exclamation. Um, I know that this is an audience that knows what a a question actually is. And so we will ask you to keep your questions to actual questions, um, keep them short, uh, and allow our respondents here time to respond fully.
3: The the question is, what what are your comments about that part of the American religious community that seems to have embraced uh, selfishness and individuality as being religious? Uh, We have a significant part of the American religious community that now is siding against health care against helping the poor, at least society helping the poor, and uh, some people say it's making a bad name for religion, so I'm wondering what your comments are about that, Uh, certainly this is not the opinion of anyone here, but one can hear many religious people, uh, I guess on the religious right you would say. uh, with ideas of that sort. I'm wondering what your opinions are. Yeah,
1: thank you. It's a great question. So the deterioration of well, that I've, kind of moral, moral code, you've been over
2: at me. me? Would, <laughs> you <like laughs> to, start? Yeah. would you like to start? Usually I have
5: to start. <laughs> 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 start this time.
2: He's, he's looking at me going, yeah, you go, you go. Um, I know. I mean, we, I, it's no secret. The religious right, uh, evangelical, has become a very bad word. Um, I, I am so sad. That that is um, a great number of uh, what Christians believe is is to be right, um, and it's it's a certain way of thinking that is um, they people believe that they're right, and yet they don't see that it is actually um, hostile and divisive, and um, and it is it is unfortunate that they have decided that, um, and that's exactly what we're talking against that. Um, understanding that it's my way or the highway and there's no other way of understanding and unfortunately that is a, a large number of what we would call the religious right and I don't know how else to speak to that mm-hmm. except with great sadness mm. um, there are a lot of those of us who who are Christians who don't see that as, as what we understand who our God is and who Christ is and why Christ came to this world and um, is a crisis a, was a man of, of compassion and concerned about social equality and concerned about those that are in the margins. And so, I, I don't know. It makes me very, very sad to, to see that.
5: Yeah, and I think that that's a big reason why young people are leaving
0: mm-hmm.
5: uh, this kind of space—not really? this particular synagogue. It's a great synagogue, as far as I can tell. Uh, but. In general, they're they're leaving religion uh, because they don't feel that religious groups are authentic. Mm -hmm. We preach about our prophets as helping the oppressed and the dispossessed and the untouchables, but do we really practice that? Uh, And I think because of that selfishness that you talked about, uh, that that when groups are only looking for a very narrow uh, aspect of may not even have to do anything with religion but what they want to achieve politically uh, and then they they, uh, they affiliate with uh, po- politicians who don't care about religion and are just using them because they have large numbers uh, I think this is the worst thing we can do for religion it creates that you know religion is not just attacked from the outside it's distorted from within uh, and religious nationalism is the worst evil in my opinion against religion not secularism and you find religious nationalism not just here uh, among evangelicals or the religious right, obviously, you find them in, in the Middle East. You have religious nationalists in Iran, religious nationalists uh, who are trying to influence governments in Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. You have religious nationalists who are trying to influence the Israeli government, who are, are not thinking about religious values, but they're thinking about a dogma and whatever it takes to get their political objective, it, then to them, I, I don't believe that they're acting within the principles of religion that we are espousing, uh, of compassion, of justice, of human dignity. Uh, if that were the case, um, then you know, obviously we wouldn't have that problem of religion.
4: So Bishop John Shelby Spong said um, he was no longer gonna call everything religion that if it was bad religion, he wasn't gonna call that religion. Right? That religion's about lining up with the principles of mm-hmm. compassion and loving kindness and and, and 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 all the arguments that it means when we need to, you know, come up against policy and what does that mean? What do we support politically in terms of policy from our own um, spiritual, ethical, moral perspectives? That we're supposed to clash about that. We're Jews. Like debate is a sport for us, right? We're we're supposed to be clashing Shame for the sake of heaven to get us to a better decision, but that should all be Lishem Shamayim with respect for the other. In this case I just say it's bad religion and people can pick religious language to back anything they that's want right. to. So I say fine, that's fine. They get to do that. That's okay. It's bad religion. And so we're just gonna need to be loud and strong and clear about here's what our religious principles call us into standing for, which is healthcare. For everybody, that there's a bottom line below which no child in this country or anywhere in the world, if we had that influence, alibi, it should only be, right? That no child should fall behind, b- below a certain level of, of poverty. And uh, it's just stuff we can stand for proudly. And if folks want to have a different view,
5: I, okay? And I think it's also important to acknowledge that even though the uh, religious right is a powerful group, Numerically, they're still smaller than the rest of us together. If we had, if we could band together, we would outnumber them. But we have, I think, because of the trust deficit, as as, uh, Amy was referring to, uh, between religious groups, we're still not able to break those barriers uh, among ourselves, and that is creating also that that sense that they're more powerful uh, and therefore we we, we tend to just resign ourselves to that group having its way uh, in its its political objectives.
1: I I just want to add, because this is something that my center has studied quite extensively, that there is a growing group of younger evangelicals. We've called them purple evangelicals. They are also calling themselves progressive evangelicals who are trying to... um, trying to force a different conversation with the same sort of theological grounding but with a different politics. We're studying it not from the perspective of our alignment with them, but from the phenomenon of its social science, why it's happening. And so I think there was just an AP piece on red-letter Christianity and a red-letter Christians uh, convening. So if you actually want to see that when we talk about internal dynamism within Mm -hmm. religious groups, even amongst evangelicals, there is a a conversation. It's usually with younger evangelicals who, who are in multiracial congregations, often in urban centers, um, but scattered throughout the cr- country, not just in, on uh, the different coasts, who are trying to force a different conversation about what it means to be an evangelical. Um, and so it's not, it is by no means a majority, but it is an interesting trend that we have been tracking and watching in the AP, uh, if you just Google the AP story on red-letter Christianity, you can see more about that um, emergent phenomenon.
0: I just, I think just there's wanted a to, lot
2: of-
5: to
3: make clear, I, yeah. I, I, I use the term right wing and and I was not necessarily just talking about evangelicals it's too easy for everyone else to say oh well it's just those evangelicals (laughs) this exists within the Jewish community Uh, I imagine it exists I think as you said within the Muslim community Uh, within the Catholic community you have a Pope who is very much what you're talking about what is Christ really about washing the feet of, of prisoners and you have people within the Catholic Church uh, who feel we've got a communist pope. So it's not, I, I, I didn't mean to. No, that's no, why no I, not
2: at all. Just,
5: that's, why, I, that's why my mentor gave me this line. I, I, I remember to this day, the world is not divided into Muslims, Christians, and Jews. The world is divided into stupid people and intelligent people. So <laughs> just keep that in mind.
2: Um, I Just, uh, just speaking in, in terms of evangelical, the, I think that that is also a definition that many of us don't understand, um, and, and it's really gotten a, a bad rap. Um, th- for us as Christians, the definition of evangelical means you believe that you have a personal relationship with Christ. And that's all it means, that you believe in what we call the gospel or the good news. And because you have this relationship with Christ... You, therefore, live out your life in that way, from this relationship, and so evangelical has now taken on all sorts of right these misnomers, and um, we are in contact in different situations with somebody that calls themselves an evangelical, which they themselves may not may or may not understand, and then we come away with a bad taste in our mouths from that. One, and so I, I like to tell people, well, if you go to an Italian restaurant and have a really bad Italian dish one time, you don't say, oh, Italy is a horrible place and I'm never going there, right? I mean, you just had a bad experience with one Italian dish. So it's um, we, we kind of having to understand that word, too, has, has gotten a, a really bad, bad rap. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I was wondering for each of you as representatives of your respective religions or theologies, uh, what methods you found effective when other people want to talk to you about some of these challenging topics, whether within your own religion or across religion or no religion involved, um, that we can all take away in our own lives as we encounter these ideas?
6: Well, I haven't spoken for a while, so maybe I'll start <laughs> off then. <laughs> I mean, as I said, in, in Buddhism, one of the real motor forces behind a lot of the religious practice is is this expression of compassion. The, the motive for, for desiring liberation is to is, it evolves out of this, this compassion that one feels either for individual human beings or really for all, all living creatures, ultimately. But what's interesting, when you, when you look at the discussions about where compassion comes from in Buddhism... There's a very famous uh, Tibetan uh, teacher named Tsongkapan in the 14th century, who sets up this very elaborate um, uh, meditation on compassion. uh, Where you first of all begin by recognizing that you've been reborn many times, you've had had, had an an infinite number of mothers in the past, uh, that all the people around you may have very well been your mother you recollect the kind of compassion your your mother showed, showed you in this lifetime and how therefore you want to repay that kindness to her. And since that same kindness that she has shown to you, you want to repay now, has been lived out for essentially an infinite number of lifetimes with all the people around you, you want to repay the kindness that all these people around you have shown you. And that's what sort of motivates your drive for liberation to be able to help these people. But if you go back in Tsongkhapa's work and try to source out how does the desire for compassion arise in the first place? It arises out of a place of equanimity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about compassion, mm-hmm. that it really has to start off on a basis, not that you are trying to help another person, or you're, you're trying to either stop hatred, you're trying to improve loving kindness, uh, trying to build justice or stop injustice, you're trying to remain equanimous throughout all of this. And it's only on the basis of equanimity that you can really build, I think, a kind of compassion that can really have an effect because it means you can be as compassionate for somebody that you might hate as, as well as, as for somebody that you love. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, I would just add, I think that idea of, 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 of starting with equanimity is um, is really an important stage that I think uh, we in the West don't often, I think, quite quite understand what that, what that could mean.
5: Mm-hmm. I think that was beautifully said.
1: Uh, I, I would actually recommend one book. Um, it's a book written by the FBI's former chief negotiator, which is a very funny thing to think about when it comes to political and religious disagreement. Uh, his name is Chris Voss. Um It's called Never Split the Difference. And what I actually really like about it is that he says that when you're negotiating with somebody, you can't actually ever get to the point of negotiation until you can articulate their position back to them Mm. with such clarity that they say, that's right. Mm. And once they say, that's right then you can actually move on. But it's that point of kind of the reflexive understanding that opens up this space to be able to have conversations um, around some differences. And in his case, differences were life and death, differences around things like kidnapping.
2: I think that all of us would be in agreement that what is foundational for what we all believe is this idea of compassion. Um, And I will say again... The the basis of what the gospel believes in and what Jesus was espousing was this notion of an upside-down world. Everything that was first is last. Things that seem like that they should be on top are actually on the bottom. It's this concept of this upside-down world. We were expecting this um, a king for a messiah, and Jesus comes... a little baby born in bethlehem is to no nobody parents it's this concept of everything that you expect in this world that you think is supposed to be the way it is it really isn't and that's the way that we're supposed to be living out our lives this idea of servanthood and compassion and equality and bringing in the marginalized that's that's how we're supposed to be living um not this understanding of a consumer world of getting as much as we can and climbing to the top and being the most powerful and having the highest status, and that's part of our human nature, our humanness. And what Christ is teaching us is that's not what it's all about. That's not what, at the end of our lives, that's not what's going to matter. What's going to matter is all the stuff that we didn't think about, the, the, the people that couldn't help themselves, the people that were powerless, the people that were not equipped, the people that didn't feel like they had justice in their lives, that is all going to come in the end. And, and, and I think that's very similar to what we all believe in, this, this notion of, of compassion and action in our compassion.
4: I go to Elu v'Elu. Elu v'Elu, Debre Elohim Chaim. These words and these words are the words of the living God. Right, and they're by the way diametrically opposed. Those words, right? It's so Jewish, right? Like, um, for me, it's about how do I remember Elu, like, Mine I get, or right, the words of the living God, but the Elu, right? And those are the words of the. How do we hold that it's someone else's truth, someone else's experience, someone else's way of seeing the world that's very different from mine. How do I hold that in a way that allows me to deal with them as a human being, as a spiritual being having a human experience and to deal with them with the respect, right, that that we can can still disagree and need to work on different policies or different issues or different whatevers, but without demonizing each other. And I think that's where we're so stuck, right, is in... It's This zero-sum mentality—if I'm right, it means you're wrong. If it's a six, it can't possibly be a nine. And um, so—and I'm not saying that's easy. And I'm not saying that that I am, think I'm ever going to be terribly successful at it. But but I but I believe the work is to try. Right? Is to constantly reframe conversations. And it doesn't mean because I, you're right that I somehow am then wrong. And the other part of that is lo <laughs> bashamayim that uh, in Deuteronomy it says it's not in the heavens, it's not across the ocean from, that it's too far for you, it's not up on some mountain that you can't reach it, right? It's not in heaven, it, right? That it's too far from you, it's close to you, the very thing is in your mouth. And the rabbis take that in the Talmud, and there's an argument, a halachic argument, if the halach is by me, let a carob tree fly by the window, and the carob tree flies by the window. And then the rabbi said, but the majority says, no, it's the halach, the law's not going to go that way. And then the rabbi says, if the law's according to me, let this river switch directions. And the river switches directions and the majority still says, sorry, like that's not, that's not our opinion about how this needs to go. And so um, a voice from heaven comes and says, no, this, this rabbi is right. This is the correct opinion. And, and the gathering says back to the voice from heaven, Lo he. you've said it's not in heaven, it's here. The decision is here, and we have to own the responsibility for the decisions. We can't look somewhere else for it, and we have to understand that it is our responsibility to the best of our abilities is to truly argue for what we believe is right to have happen next in whatever context that is, uh, recognizing that there's a minority or there's different people who disagree with that. And um, and that's a a hard reality, but that's... That's the call, I think.
5: If I could just add that I think that one of the the greatest problems that human beings face um, in pursuing the truth, it's not what other people say or do or don't do. It's what I am not able to see. And when I am so um, entangled in victimhood, that prevents me from seeing what the other side is seeing. If it's only about me, if it's only about my people, and I get the calls every day. My dad calls me. Do you see what happened in uh, uh, the Palestinians? Do you see what happened to the Iraqis? Do you see what happened to the Syrians? And I'm sure you get the call, same kind of calls. Um, and, and, and it's not to say that my dad is into fic- victimhood, but it's an example of if that's all we care about, a, we're not going to help the people that we that who are suffering right now, because we need everybody to understand the problem before the situation is going to be changed. It's not one percent of the American public is Muslim. It's not the 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 American Muslim community that's going to go and solve all the problems. It's about how we can frame the, the conversation for other Americans to see why these issues are important. But the greater problem, the, the worst problem is when you have the sense of entitlement that because you believe something is happening then you are entitled to some kind of service or some kind of correction or something this is disconnected from reality and you lose the sense of social responsibility or even personal responsibility. You start blaming everybody else. You blame the media you blame the government, you blame this group or that group and then that prevents you from understanding the total picture of what is happening around us, and it prevents you from really seeking something that would help the people that you're trying to uh, trying to help in the first and place.
4: I, I was in, in Israel listening to Tal Becker, who said. Um, Exactly. This, when we're over-attached to the victim-villain narrative, then right. that narrative and that identity becomes more important than anything else. You're having a conversation about, and so if I'm attached to being the victim, right, then then it stops me from being able to actually discuss the issue because the issue is my identity right. being caught up in being the victim, right? And and if that gets challenged, then I get existentially pushed, and then then we can't have a conversation about the actual issues right and so that is a huge problem and i think we as religious leaders that we as community leaders we as educators and teachers and people who hold a huge common uh, hold a big public space and, and have the stage often and have the microphone often we are we are the carriers of the na- we are the like the guardians of the narratives of our people and it is on us as leaders to turn down the volume on the victim villain over-identification with those roles that stops any kind of real conversation or understanding of the other. And I think we need to take that responsibility way more seriously um, to to really be the guardians of those narratives and turn down that volume.
1: Thank you. Hello. uh,
4: I
2: enjoyed your talk. Um, uh, This is sort of an ethical question. Um, I know we talked, I heard about compassion and kindness and Helping other people, uh, but when one does it, it could be with friends or it could be with family. But if it's not uh, appreciated, when uh, do we have to like hold back and say, Well, we tried or we didn't get anywhere? So, isn't there like a time frame that we should give, uh, especially family, that we should? let them know that we're trying to help them but sometime in other people's eyes they don't see it as we're trying to be nice and helpful they see it in a, in a different context and i was just wondering if, do you have any comment about that yeah
1: what are the ethics yeah. what are the limitations that you can impose on your attempts to to make a difference in someone's life and if they don't yeah. see it when does it become coercive or problematic yeah.
6: You know, I think everyone has their, their own karmic propensities in a sense, and uh, um, all we can do is really mirror and model for them what, what we are trying to be ourselves, what, what the, the highest aspirations we have for ourselves. And uh, there will be some people who will not have any interest in that, and we can't force them to have interest if they don't have interest. Uh, they have to kind of find their own way. And. Uh, um, I think the Buddhists treat uh, the whole issue of conversion sort of similarly. You know, you're not trying to convert people. You're trying to simply mirror. And if people are ready to have, if, they, if they're interested in what you're talking about, then you can talk with them. But if not, then, you know, you say, well, good luck to you and move on. I, th-
2: I think, oh, sorry. So no,
6: go ahead, Chris. Go ahead.
2: I think in in this whole topic of trying to talk to other people, and I, in, in, I think, Salam was saying, I mean, it's not our job to, I mean, the Holy, for us as Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit is what moves people. It's not our job to convert people or to change their understanding. It's, it's really God that's doing it. And we're just part of, we're just along for the ride and we do the best that we can. But in talking, I think not only in conversations that we have about things such as this, but in any general conversation that we have with people or we get into situations with those that we love and those that we're trying to, face time interface with um jesus tells us you know when you have an argument with somebody how many times are you supposed to forgive them well jesus actually gives us a number figure he says seven times seventy now do i think that jesus is actually saying seventy times well 490 times you're supposed to count i don't think so i think jesus was trying to say you are innumerable in your attack you're 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 trying and then you're forgiving you're trying you're forgiving we're in that process all the time we have to be in understanding that that is the process So I think um, that's part of of what it means to be in in the human condition, right? That we're always trying. We're in this process of transformation. And
4: that real compassion is not about a result. Mm. Real compassion isn't you get it that I'm trying to be compassionate and therefore you're going to change towards me. Mm. Real compassion is I get it. You who are who you are with your own pain and your own suffering and your own stuff and your own humanity, and I am too. And just get it that we're both all trying to do the best that we can. And if it's too painful to sit in the presence of family members who really do have an attitude that's either toxic or poisonous, or then we just don't need to do that. Doesn't mean I can't have compassion for that person. But it, it really compassion isn't for me ever about the result of somebody changing. Hmm. Right? Compassion is about. Can I stay in a heart that's soft and open even when I get triggered and charged? And there's nobody who can trigger and charge us like family. (laughs) Amen to that.
5: And I think, uh, you know, even if your family member is a drug addict or an alcoholic, and Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and in Al Anon, they they teach you you just focus on yourself, and there's that serenity serenity prayer. You know, oh God. give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. That's right. and, and let's face it, we all are in some kind of addictive, obsessive behavior and we have to step back sometimes and just A, forgive ourselves for making that mistake and then forgive uh, the other um, if they're doing something that is harmful or, or that is bad and see if there are ways to help them see how they can change themselves. But ultimately, you know, I think religion is about self-interest. I want to serve myself. I want to be at peace with myself first mm-hmm. and foremost. And, and I want God to be pleased with me. So it is in my best interest to also focus on fixing myself first. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think think that is a good note, actually, to end on. Um, The serenity prayer is a good good note to end on. Um, I'd like to thank you for all of your contributions and your reflections and your wisdom. Um, Whenever I'm in a Jewish space, I'm reminded of Pirkei Avot, that ours is not to desist from the task, nor is it to see it finished, and that we have, I think, pushed ourselves along in the path to understanding justice and understanding the richness of how to be together. Um, But we will, and of course, never see it finished, uh, which is that wonderful tension that Judaism deals with so well. So thank you. Uh, And thank you for allowing me to be a part of this day. It was a pleasure to be in this beautiful space for my first time.